Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Seek First Podcast. I'm Rick Brown. We talk about everything here, life, seeking God, biblical truth, today's culture, and whatever is on my guest's radar to unpack. We want to understand what is happening around us. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Let's jump in. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored and humbled and to be here. I've, I've never quite done anything like this before, so um, here goes. Thank you so much. Uh, Los Angeles, Southern California. I am originally from New Jersey. We're from the New York metropolitan area. A lot of people tell me I need to move to Florida, and, I, <laughs> and I'm not leaving my home. I'm going to fight and expose what's going on where I am, so... The name of our organization is Project Veritas, Project Truth, Project Truth. Veritas is Latin for truth, and our motto is be brave, do something. Be brave, do something. Now, I've been going on this book tour. The name of the book I've just written is called American Muckraker. Muckraker. It's about journalism. It's about exposing the truth. Um, what is the definition of a muckraker? Some people think muckracker. How do you pronounce that word? Muckraker is, is someone who, who exposes something that powerful people want kept secret. So it's releasing information that's not authorized. Unauthorized information, which you saw the First Amendment. It's, uh, this country was founded on the idea of the public's right to know. That is, giving information to people so they can make informed decisions. These days, people don't really seem to have access to what's actually going on. And... Our organization is premised on the fact that if they did know what was going on, if they could see it, cinema verite, veritas, if they could see the images of what was happening, that we would, we would agree more on what's happening. Because there's only one truth, there's only one reality, which is what we seek to expose. Now, the two most frequently asked questions I get in my book tour, number one, uh, which is an unfortunate question, but I do get asked this question, is do I fear for my life? And, um, and that question kind of, that question assumes that I'm, uh, I'm afraid in the first place. And the second question is, what can I do? People, everyone wants to do something. And people don't know what to do. And they don't know how to do. Uh, but increasingly, uh, I was speaking to an audience last night in, in Beverly Hills. And a guy raised his hand and said, well, I have a mortgage. He works in Hollywood. I have a mortgage. I have kids. I'm afraid to give these things up. But it seemed to me that he was, seek, he was seeing that escape from him. He knew that that was on shaky ground. So increasingly, people are stepping up, and they are speaking up, and Veritas is a place for them to go. So I'm going to uh, tell a little bit about myself, tell you some stories, show you some videos of our journalism. Some of you have seen some of these things. Some of you have not. It'll be quite exciting. Some of this material is quite shocking. Uh, some of it's disturbing. But... It's what's happening in your state of California, in your schools, and in your media. So I think it's important for you to see it. Veritas' mission is to expose corruption, dishonesty, waste, fraud, abuse, disconduct. I, 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 we often use undercover techniques to get the information. Uh, we use disguise. Uh, we do whatever we have to do to get the truth because we believe it's important to get that. I've, I've posed as all types of characters over the years. That's me in different costumes going in these places to get, you know, to dig, dig deep and get the information. Uh, we, we at Veritas believe our government is in a state of just sclerosis, and, and we think that solutions are beyond the political process. So I'm going to jump ahead to a story we did this week. I don't know if you saw, but this, the president of Jeff Zucker resigned from CNN this week. Um, this is sort of developing right now that the network is in, is in a lot of trouble, um, Zucker was a, you know, kind of a leader at the network, and, and whether he was a good or bad leader, he was a leader, and now he's gone, and there's a lot of stuff happening inside the network, and, and these, these organs of information, you know, are, they don't really, CNN doesn't really have many viewers, but your kids, and, and uh, they have like 17 viewers, but they, they, they are given power because of their relationship with Google, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so so what we do is we dig deep and we, we meet with these people. This is a story we did in April of this past year, and a guy named Charlie Chester, 
who's the control room director. And I'm going to play a few clips of what he said. And, and, I, and we believe at Veritas that the media has more power than the government. In fact, the government derives its power from an informed population. So I'm going to play a few clips here of Charlie Chester describing what CNN really does, who they are, and, and what they're trying to accomplish here. This is him describing their political motivations at CNN, and, and they're trying to, to, quote, get Trump out of office and help Biden. I think I, I think we got him through this term. We would always share shots of him jogging. Him and aviator shades and like a, like you paint him as a young geriatric. We were creating a story there that we didn't know anything about. You know, we were so that's that's I think that's probably it. Look what we did. We got Trump back. I am a hundred percent gonna say it. And I 100% believe it, that if it wasn't for CNN, I don't know that Trump would have got voted out. Our focus was to get Trump out of office, right? Without saying it, that's what it was. And that's the, the, that moment when he says, this is our, this is our mission, to, to elect this guy or not elect. But then, but then Chester says, without saying that's what we do. So that's that privacy. My question is, why wouldn't CNN just call itself a propaganda network? <laughs> Nothing wrong with being a propaganda network if you say you're a propaganda network. But they hide it from people. Uh, this is another clip inside of CNN. Charlie Chester saying COVID. And, he's, and, and this is a really, for me, this is one of the more important investigations we ever did. People say, what's the, what's the thing you're most proud of? Something like this, because it shows, it shows what their real motivation is. It says COVID is gangbusters with their ratings. COVID, gangbusters with ratings. COVID, gangbusters with ratings. There's even a clip, and this is... Um, they put these death numbers on the screen at CNN. And, and, it's, and it's shocking because he says he wants more people to die so that CNN can have higher ratings. You're really seeing the man behind the curtain here at CNN. Which is why we constantly have the death toll on the side. Let's make it higher. Like, why isn't it high enough, you know, today? Like, it would make our point better if it was... I mean, he's, he's, he's clenching his fists. We need more people to die so we can get the ratings. And, and, that, and this is really what we need to expose, right? Now, what I found in, in, in my life is that bad people do bad things and get away with it for a little while until they don't. Because now, everything that's happening with CNN... By the way, this clip, really powerful. He says it's all about fear. He says, fear drives our ratings at CNN. Like, fear really drives numbers. Fear is the thing that keeps you tuned in. Fear is the thing that keeps you tuned in. Now, I'm speaking at a church, and one of the things that occurs to me in, in, in as few words as I can put it is that I think that faith is the opposite of fear. But... These are the people that manufacture consent, to quote Noam Chomsky. These are the people that educate your children, educate your citizens in airports. These are the people that create, quote unquote, the news. These are the people that all the politicians go on to talk on these programs. And this man, the man behind the curtain, is saying it's all about fear. If it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. No, no one ever says it, those things out loud. No one ever says those things out loud. Please say that again into my button camera. And again, I'm not, I'm not making a judgment about what this man is saying. I say, if you believe in something, say it publicly. <laughs> Stand behind what... If you want to be a, quote-unquote, propaganda network who, quote, gets Trump out, quote, based on fear, so more people can die, let's, instead of saying CNN, most trusted name of news, CNN propaganda network who wants more people to die. If that's what your mission is, just say it. And I think you... I think, you, I think this is really um, disturbing, actually, uh, but it's important that we expose it. So um, let me, let me uh, take a step back and talk a little about who I am, and then I'll tell you some more stories. I'll, I'll tell a story about Planned Parenthood. I'll tell a story about um, uh, the FBI raid on my home. But first, a little about me. So you kind of think, thinking people in the audience, like, this guy's what, what, what happened to him to make him the way that he is? 
I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I, I, I'm a journalist, but I will tell you about my upbringing because I've been asked to speak about that and, and kind of the qualities that make someone uh, do something like this. Uh, I, I think the most important quality is a desire to expose what's going on, to, to show people what's going on I, in an artistic way, right? Veritas is not a political organization. Our stories are political, but I think our mission is revelation. It's truth. It's reality. It's exposing them. So for me, I was born in the year 1984, which is prophetic. <laughs> for those of you who have not reread George Orwell's book, you should. Every, every sentence in that book is amazing and applies to our present circumstances. So I, let me tell you a little about myself and, you know, the part, the beginning of my life that I have not really talked about very much. I was born in 1984 in northern New Jersey. My, my dad is from Buffalo, New York. Uh, I grew up, my, my mother's a physical therapist, uh, wake up every morning at 4 or 5 a.m. And, and drive into the city. Sometimes I went with her into New York City, the Bronx. Um, when I was a very young child, my father, we, we did not have a lot of money, but my father bought this ratty old house in New Jersey and decided to fix it up by himself. A very handy guy, thinking he might rent half of it out. This is a carriage house from 1886, very old structure that was pretty much condemned. Um, the house was in such bad shape that it was almost condemned. It was like the leaning tower of Pisa. Uh, my dad solicited the help of my grandfather, James O'Keefe Sr. I'm James O'Keefe III. My father is James O'Keefe Jr., which is like three James O'Keefe's living in the same house, all the same name. The mail gets very confusing. <laughs> um, my grandfather's father was from Ireland, uh, but he himself was a very handy man. My grandfather could not read. He was dyslexic. But he was very good with his hands. He could build things out of nothing. This picture is him starting to work on a portion of this house. He would salvage materials off the side of the road product of the Great Depression from a town called Olean, New York. So when I was five years old, I started working with my dad and grandfather. There's me at five years old. And in the beginning, I would just hand them tools. Now, I was not wired the same way my father and grandfather were. <laughs> They're handy carpenters. They're carpenters. I'm a creative person, so I'm like daydreaming all the time while they're working. But I handed them screwdrivers and, you know, you know, bricks and things like this. Um, to, this, to this day, I think my father's probably the hardest working man I've ever met. People would always say he couldn't do certain things, you know, as a, as a carpenter, as an engineer, and he just did it. He found a way. So I, I witnessed that as a young person watching him. Um, he often did this work, did not make small talk with me. This is what he looked like working all the time, and I would hand him tools. He did everything himself and was so intensely focused and driven, tunnel-visioned almost, to, to get this work done. I would say it's like a tunnel vision that I think, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I think it's that tunnel vision, whatever it takes to do it. And even if it's hard, even if it's painful, even if it requires sacrifice, it's necessary. So necessary, uncomfortable things. And by the way, that photo, I have a mullet. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know... It was the 80s. As I got slightly older, I was forced to do more than hand them tools. Um, this, this, you know, uh, <laughs> I was scraping paint chips there. And by the way, that is one place where you do want to wear a mask. <laughs> you do. When you're, when you're scraping lead paint, you want to wear a mask. I don't think I wore a mask. <laughs> uh, People say, what are you afraid of? Okay, well, I'm not afraid of much, but I am afraid of heights. So the latter work was not, a, I was not a fan of that. But I did what I had to do. I was, for, I was forced to do this, this, this manual labor every single weekend as a kid. And again, I didn't like it. <laughs> my, grandfather, my grandfather actually called me Irish. As he was saying, you Irish, you know, and he had this sort of accent and he called me Irish. And he said, yeah, I was sticking my arm down sewage pipe or doing these disgusting jobs, dirty jobs. He said, you have to do whatever it takes to survive. I didn't really understand what he meant by that. Uh, but he would monitor and supervise me doing this work. This is a, this is a picture of him 
It's actually a pretty high-resolution picture for 30 years ago. Um, and he would supervise me doing this work as a child. It was dirty work every weekend and some nights after school. Now, when they, my, my dad actually restored the house, it was such an impressive thing that the state of New Jersey gave my parents an award. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe you fixed that house. <laughs> it's about to fall down. I mean, most people couldn't have fixed the house, but with, it's amazing what you can do with a little creativity and, and uh, know-how. Uh, so they gave my parents an award, you know, some few years later in the early 1990s. But sadly, sometime later, there was a house fire that destroyed a lot of what my, my, I spent my youth building. Basement fire renders two families. This is a newspaper clipping from what happened. The house fire came and destroyed most of what I spent so long building and restoring. It was a really sad day. It was St. Patrick's Day, actually. When this happened, I remember, I remember pulling up the fire trucks, you know, to the house and uh, see, seeing my dad get emotional and, and, and seeing all the weekends I spent, you know, having this happen. It was, it was just a, as I was probably, I don't know, nine years old, at the time, 10 years old at the time. People in town again said, this house cannot be saved. You know, you, you have to condemn it. You know, you, have, you cannot fix it up. My grandfather said to my father, it'll be okay, we'll bring it back. So he moved back into the attic of the house and we commenced doing the work all over again. That's a picture of my grandfather in the newspaper in New Jersey. For the next year or two, my sister, my mother and my father, that's a picture of my sister and I, went back to doing all the same work all over again. <laughs> I remember the stench of a fire. Um, you know, charred and, you know, plastic, you know, things. And, and, and insurance didn't cover everything, you know, because that's just sometimes what happens. And we went about the business of fixing this house all over again. So as a child, I did all this work and I had to do it all over again. It reminds me of a poem by Rudyard Kipling. To, to give your life to the things that you see broken and build them out with worn out tools. So that's what, that's what I, that was my adolescence. That was my upbringing, um, you know, before I became interested in journalism. And you might say, well, what, what, how does this have anything to do with journalism? Well, I don't know that it does. But it certainly seemed to instill in me, looking back on it, this sort of tunnel vision, sort of dri drive to do uncomfortable things that I did not like doing. I trust me, I hated doing this stuff. I mean, I really hated it. I would, I would imagine I was, you know, doing something else in some other place to get through the days of working on these houses, these, this, this manual labor. And, and we did everything. My grandfather never retired. This is a picture of him at 80 years old. Um, he, he, he passed away soon after this, but he had a stroke. But he was up until the day of his stroke, he was on ladders and on roofs and doing things that 80-year-old men probably should not be doing, climbing up around like he was. Um, even though he didn't look like it, he was, pretty, he was pretty good at climbing on ladders. Okay, fast forward. Back to the journalism part. About, let's see, where are we? Uh, about um, 15 years later, after Project Veritas, many of you know the work I do with ACORN and all these things I did you know, for years, I was arrested by the FBI when I was 25 years old. I'm 37 years old now, so this was 12 years ago. You're looking at a picture of me here walking out of jail. Uh, you're looking at a picture of me in complete and total state of shock. I was in federal custody. It would tell me, it'd take me a long time to tell the story, but I'll tell it briefly. I was in a senator's office, Mary Landrieu of Louisiana, with, with an iPhone recording you know, questions I was asking, trying to get answers like I do, and I was not breaking the law. I, in fact, I showed my real driver's license when I entered this federal building, but they detained me. And when they found out who I was, this is, these are federal agents in a federal building in Louisiana, which is a pretty corrupt place, New Orleans, Louisiana. When they found out who I was and what my mission was, and that I was with Veritas, and I was the acorn pimp, the acorn investigation, they decided, to put, they decided to keep me overnight in that jail. And the next day, I was brought to a room, and I was put in handcuffs and, and, and put in shackles. They put me in shackles with, a, with an orange 
felony jumpsuit like you might see a terrorist on TV. And they put me in a little cage and they said through this glass, plexiglass, they said, you're being charged with a 10-year felony in jail for trying to destroy federal property and interfere with a telephone system. Now, you have to understand how shocked I was to hear this. I don't know how I'm going to destroy property with a reporter notebook and an iPhone. But th that, that moment in, in this federal uh, holding cell in New Orleans, Louisiana, I was charged with this, with this horrible crime that I did not commit. In fact, I was an innocent man. One could say they're doing this to me because I am doing journalism, not despite the fact that I'm doing journalism. But in that moment in this little cage in New Orleans, Louisiana, I was, I was, I was afraid. I, I think it's safe to say I was very scared, and I thought my life was going to be over in that moment. I could, never thought I would be standing here. I never thought I'd have an organization with all these employees and doing all this journalism. I, I, I became a political prisoner. And um, uh, I spent some time in a St. Bernard Parish prison system. On a, I was on a prison transport bus. <laughs> was, this is like, this is crazy. I was, I was transferred to a, um, a jail cell. And uh, while I was do in doing so, the people in this prison transport bus were all, had done some pretty bad things. You know, robbed banks mostly. And, and, and the, bus, the prison bus driver said, what are you in for? I said, I'm a journalist. <laughs> and the guy goes, I ain't never seen anything like this before. <laughs> so so it was, it, I was in a state of, uh, I guess you could say, uh, uh, tra trauma, state of trauma. So eventually, I was arraigned. And this is, they got a photograph of me walking out of jail. In my pocket was my, my um, uh, carbon papers I had signed. Uh, I had, thank God I made, um, I made bail. I, was, I spent three and a half years on federal supervised probation, and I, I was confined to, to, to New Jersey, uh, <laughs> to, which is, yeah, it's not a place you want to be confined to, I guess, sometimes. Um, New Jersey's like the size of San Bernardino County. But I couldn't leave, you know, I couldn't leave with my property without permission from a judge, from a probation officer, from, from prosecutors. And, and you know what? It could have been so much worse. I'm pretty blessed, and and I was at least free in a sense, but for them to, for our own government, and they continue to do this, and I'll get to another story in a moment, but for our own government, I, I grew up believing in this country, I still do, I, I'm very optimistic, I'll get to that, but you sort of pledge allegiance, you, you, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave, and for them to attack the First Amendment is the worst type of injustice. Because the First Amendment is the right that makes all of our other rights possible. That is the most important thing that we have, I believe. So, so I, was, I was confined in New Jersey, and I started sending cameras to other people while I was not able to leave. My house. <laughs> so I, I, I am very thankful to these prosecutors who did this to me. Because if they did not do this to me, there never would have been a Project Veritas. Now, what I've also learned is the world is round, because three years after they did this to me, I became a free man on May 26, 2013, when I was 20, 29 years old. And all of those people who did prosecute me, eventually, it turned out they were doing illegal, corrupt things. They were doing anonymous commenting on newspaper articles, which is a violation of federal ethics laws. And all of the United States attorneys who did prosecute me eventually resigned in disgrace and lost their law licenses for what they did. So, people say, people say, nothing ever happens to these people. Trust me, things do happen to these people. People are held accountable. And, and actually, what I found in this life, they are often held accountable. So, fast forward a little more. So, so to talk about some videos we've done, I, I did a story about Planned Parenthood, actually, in Los Angeles. Another moment in my life that was uh, uh, very telling. Went in undercover to Planned Parenthood with a girl named Lila Rose. Went inside these clinics. I took a camera inside this clinic in Los Angeles, Santa Monica, actually, with a hidden camera, recorded them telling me to get an illegal abortion. She pretended to be 15, that's statutory rape in your state of California, 
and I was then 23. After I did this, Planned Parenthood sent me a letter. And the letter said, this is a serious matter. We demand that you cease and desist from recording any Planned Parenthood people. They, they tried to throw California Penal Code Statute uh, 637 at me. 632, you can't record people in California, they said, even though I said it's a public place. I'm in a hallway. People can overhear it. They, this billion-dollar corporation sent Lila and I a letter. And again, there's another moment in my life when I was, I, I could say I was a little afraid. Again, you're holding this letter. They're threatening you with criminal prosecution. They're always trying to put me in jail, by the way. <laughs> Every, I'm always, they're always trying to incarcerate me for doing journalism. So I'm holding this letter from Planned Parenthood, and it says, you must take these videos off YouTube. And I have a choice to make, right? I can take the videos off YouTube. And I think a lot of people have a choice to make in life, metaphorically, to take the videos off YouTube. But there's this little mischievous part of me <laughs> that does not want to take the videos off YouTube. <laughs> I think Joe Rogan has a choice to make. I don't know if he's listening. I don't know if you want to listen to my advice, but I think you should double down, Joe Rogan. I think you should double down. Joe Rogan, you have all the power. They have no power. You have all the power. Stop apologizing. <laughs> uh, so, but, but, but I, I want to take you through this, this moment in space and time because I think this is important, and it's, and it's a story I don't often tell. Uh, I was forced, forced to make a choice. It's holding this letter from Planned Parenthood. So the mischievous part of me won, and I sent the letter to someone I knew who knew someone at Fox News. And the letter got to the desk of Bill O'Reilly. And Bill O'Reilly found it interesting that Planned Parenthood was trying to... And by, by the way, no one knew who I was at the time. I, I'm not sure, you know, I think Lila had done some work in California, but she wasn't a national figure like she is now. And Bill O'Reilly did a segment about this for the O'Reilly Factor. This is in 2007. Personal story segment tonight, 18-year-old UCLA student Layla Rose, active in pro-life causes, went undercover to a Planned Parenthood facility in Los Angeles. Ms. Rose wanted to show that Planned Parenthood was not following the law regarding minors and abortion. She implied to the Planned Parenthood person that she was 15 years old and had been impregnated by her 23-year-old boyfriend. Here's part of that conversation. So this is the quote from the Planned Parenthood. Just, just lie about your age to get the abortion. That was caught on a hot mic moment in inside the clinic. Okay, and I don't know. Okay. Joining us now from LA is Miss Rose, and from Nashville, her attorney David French from the Alliance Defense Fund. Well, here, here's what happened. Rather than doing what they should have done and what a responsible corporation should do which is to take immediate disciplinary action, the first public act that they did was threaten Lila with this uh, provision of the California Penal Code, which not only says that she could be sued, but also provides for jail time. The very first Planned Parenthood that I went into with my colleague James, with my friend James O'Keefe, we got the, those results. The first employee at the first Planned Parenthood told me, you know, figure out a birth date that works. I don't know anything. So after we did this and Lila went on TV, Planned Parenthood backed down and withdrew the cease and desist letter. Moral of the story, don't apologize, Joe Rogan. All right, All right. fast forward. I mean, I, I could tell you a thousand war stories. I will choose to tell you two more. Um, this is a California high school teacher. I'm, I'm focusing on your state. And I'm focusing on California because I'm in California, so there's a it's a target-rich environment in California. <laughs> Even as I'm walking through here, you got to expose this. You got to expose this. You, there's a lot. There's a lot of things to expose. Um, but this is a story involving in Sacramento, California. Someone, people, our model is now changed at Veritas. Rather than infiltrate, go undercover, which is a very tough thing to do. It's not easy to. To, to get inside of an institution. You know, we don't, we don't break the law at Project Veritas. And, and that's limiting because we have to do it legally, we have to do it ethically. Now, but now what happens is that people on the inside come to us. And, and this was a, someone in the school district up there 
in, in Indercombe High School in Sacramento had sent us a photo of an Antifa flag hanging on the wall of a high school teacher. He even had a picture of Chairman Mao on the wall. And he was stamping the homework assignments with an ink stamp of Joe Stalin. <laughs> Stalin. Not, not just communism, Stalinism. So, of course, this interested me. And I wanted to go get some more recordings about this guy. So we sent some, we have a great team at Veritas. We've built up an organization that has 70, now 70 employees and 20 full-time undercover people. And we went to meet with this man at a coffee shop in Sacramento. And we recorded him. He does not know that he is being recorded here. And he's, and he's bragging about what he wants to do to, to your children. Now, I, I apologize for how graphic this is but I think it's important that you hear it. Because again, these are your teachers in public school. Here we go. Gabriel Guype, public school, high school teacher, Intercom High School. I have 180 days to turn them into revolutionaries. How do you do that? How do you scare the fuck out of them? Scare the F out of the children and turn them into revolutionaries and send them to Antifa events and give them extra credit for this. When they go, they take pictures, they write up a reflection, that's their extra credit. Like, I, I have an Antifa flag on my, on my wall, um, and a student complained about that, and he said it made him feel uncomfortable. Well, this is meant to make fascists feel uncomfortable, so if you feel uncomfortable, I, I don't really know what he's doing. He's trying to make students feel uncomfortable with this Chairman Mao stuff and Antifa stuff. He's saying it's, he wants people to feel uncomfortable. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. We confronted this guy in the street in Sacramento, and then he told us that we are making him feel uncomfortable. Gabriel, hello, how are you? I'm good. I am a journalist with Project Veritas. Okay. Nice to talk with you. Don't, am I getting... Don't... He's got a hammer and sickle on his shirt. He sort of looks like the character I would cast in a Saturday Night Live skit playing the role of the teacher. And my colleague recording, we are recording but I think you're going to be more interested in what I have to say here. I don't feel comfortable. Oh, he doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> now, after this happened, something really extraordinary happened. This was September 1st of last year here in California, right, right before all the school board meetings were happening, before the FBI going after the parents for the school board meetings. We'll get to that in a moment. That, that there was parents flooded the school board meetings. Hundreds of parents. And these are not Democrats or they're, they're not Republicans. I wouldn't even say they're very active in that way in, in any regard, but they just came into the room and it was really inspirational to see how indignant they were. I'm going to show you a few clips of these parents. None of this would have happened but not for the clip I just showed you. Check this out. That in two weeks, in 13 days, he was allowed to change my daughter's mind about some fascist crap that y'all have led in this school. I'm tired. This is ridiculous. I'm from Texas. So this don't go on in Texas. This does not go on in Texas. One after the other, these parents stood up and, and over and over, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of people enraged, indignant about this video recording, about this guy who said he wanted to scare your kids. What has been exposed about Gabriel Guy by Project Veritas is exactly what I was concerned about. I mean, over, I mean, I could show you a hundred clips of these parents. Let me tell you, I'm not shocked. Why? Because there's another teacher right down the road yeah. at Leroy Green Academy who did the same thing. And, and you know what? It was funny about this is that the school board the people were in, you know, at the podium and there were so many outraged parents, so outraged that the school board people snuck out the back door in their Tesla cars and drove away. They literally drove away from the school board meeting. We chased after them with the microphone. But after these videos came out, California, which is a very hard state to fire a tenured teacher, they fired this teacher in Sacramento. The past month, Gabriel Guype has been put on paid administrative leave tonight. The school board making an official decision to fire him. And it wasn't just conservative media. It was CBS News. It wasn't me preaching to the choir. It was people who don't agree with 
whatever that even means anymore, because I'm not sure there is much to disagree on here. It was local media announcing this man has been fired for what he did. Now, you might say, well, that's not enough, James O'Keefe. You're not going to solve everything all at once. And if you can just change, like, one person's life, or even a few people's lives, that's a good start. So we need to do more of this. I, I want to just tell one more story. I could tell a million stories, but I, I have to tell the story. Now, when you expose powerful people, they, the empire tends to strike back. <laughs> I may be one of the only men you'll ever hear from who's not a gangster or a mobster who's been put in handcuffs twice by the FBI. <laughs> and I'm an American journalist. That's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Or maybe it's not shocking. I don't know anymore. So, okay. Long story short, a year ago, Ashley Biden, the daughter of Joe Biden, Joe Biden has a daughter named Ashley Biden. Someone sent us her diary. And uh, we, we looked into it. We, we did not publish this document because uh, we, could not, we could not verify that it was actually hers. We, we were fairly certain, but not 100%. Could have been a setup. I don't know. I didn't publish it. I also couldn't confirm that what she wrote in this diary happened and I didn't think it was ethical or appropriate to publish someone's private diary. I've been criticized for that, but people attack me for being deceptive and being an unethical sleazebag. I, if I was an unethical person, I would have published this woman's diary. <laughs> I chose not to publish a diary. A year later, and by the way, some people say it's stolen. I, I, I don't think it was and I don't know if it was, but even if it was, I'm protected by, by uh, the Supreme Court you know, journalists can publish documents that are stolen by other people as long as I didn't participate in the theft. A year later, I get, uh, two of my former colleagues get raided by the FBI. I make a statement about that. And then, and then uh, a day later, I hear a pounding on my door. <laughs> Open up, FBI. This is three months ago, four months ago. And I... Um, I've told this story a few times. The first thought that went through my head as they were pounding on my door, believe it or not, I, I live in an apartment in, in New York State, two-bedroom apartment was, my first thought was, um, how long have they been pounding on my door? Because after a few minutes, they're going to bust that door down, and I don't want them to break my locks. So I ran to my door, at, this is six in the morning on a Saturday, I believe they were probably surveilling me because I've been told the FBI does not execute search warrants on the weekends. I, I opened the door and there's about a dozen federal agents wearing blue FBI jackets, like, like something you see out of a movie, with, I think, mag lights or flashlights shining in my face. Now, I'm, I'm in my, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my underwear, um, and, I'm, and they put me in handcuffs, and they threw, this is three months ago, and they put me against the wall, and I thought I was under arrest, and then, and then they uh, brought me back into my apartment, and uh, uh, asked me if I would behave myself. I was pretty well behaved. And uh, they showed me a search warrant signed by a federal magistrate judge in New York. This is the Southern District of New York, federal court. A judge had signed a warrant. And on the warrant, it said that I, you know, something to the effect of possession of stolen documents across state lines and accessory after the fact. These are absurd crimes. Journalism? Journalists? Reporters? accessory after the fact. All journalism is accessory after the fact. People send you stuff, sometimes unsolicited. I mean, if they were to charge an American journalist for accessory after the fact, they have to incarcerate every journalist at the Washington Post or the New York Times. I mean, is, is sending an email, crossing state lines? These are absurd things. And all this is rushing through my head as these federal agents were raiding my home. And I, mean, you know, this is, and I was brought right back to my experience in New Orleans. I was brought right back to the jail cell in New Orleans, Louisiana. I thought, here we go again. <laughs> Going back to jail. For what? And obviously it was, I guess, an attempt to intimidate me. So this was happening in my apartment. At 6.15 a.m., I made a phone call to my lawyer. No one's awake at 6.15 on a Saturday, by the way. And they take my two iPhones. Nothing else. They put them in the evidence bag. And the lead agent says to me at the end of this raid, Mr. O'Keefe, do you have any questions? I said, I have a lot of questions. I thought, I, I thought that. So this happens. Uh, the FBI does this. And um, it, it, was, it, was it scary? People say, are you afraid? Listen, 
I think at the moment I, I, was, I, I felt like I was in danger. And, and I think that there's a difference between danger and fear. I, I, don't, I think that I, there's so much that has happened to me, and certainly so much has happened to you, and we'll bring you up in a moment, that after, after a while, I write about this in my book, I feel like when you go through all these things, you know, you, and you, you're a survivor of what I call in the book psychological abuse, I think you develop kind of superpowers. And, and, I, and I, after a while, I, I, I learned not to be a slave to fear. I learned that through this process. So, and, and, and people, you know, certainly look to us for guidance and, and uh, I'm humbled by that and I'm trying to live up to that. But what I've learned in my life is that yes, we are being tortured in a sense. And yes, in some, on some level, there's some aspect of suffering here. But I think they're the ones that are truly suffering. They're the ones that are truly being tortured. And I looked at the faces of the federal agents that morning in, in my home. There was, a, again, about a dozen of them. There were, I don't know, about four, four, four girls, you know, eight guys. And I, it almost seemed to me that four or five out of those FBI agents were fans of mine. <laughs> Maybe I'm intuiting too much, but I, I, I swear it seemed like they were, they, they liked Project Veritas. But they were just following orders, right? Because they have a pension. Because they have, and there's a lot of people throughout history that followed orders. But we're trying to find people that are not willing to follow the orders. Be because there are some things more important in life than, because than, than, I think there's a lot of good people in these institutions, and, I, and, I, and I'm very hopeful. So I, so I'm running out of time. I, 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 a beautiful thing happened after the FBI raid. People started defending us, ironically enough, even from the New York Times. We had, we had uh, uh, you know, liberal organizations, left-wing organizations defend us, worrying from a press, press freedom perspective. We had uh, organizations like the ACLU come to our defense. That's probably the most shocking thing I'll say to you today. And if I had told you, yes, the ACLU is going to defend Project Veritas, you would have thought I was a lunatic. The FBI raid on Veritas Founders Home Sparks questions about press freedom, writes Josh Gerstein at Politico, no fan of mine. The Washington Post with the unintentionally ironic tagline, democracy dies in darkness, with the opinion headline, did the Justice Department overreach? It had to take this, this, this moment of, of, this was a horrible violation. I mean, this was an illegal act. The Attorney General of the United States expressly forbids the execution of search warrants against journalists' homes precisely because you don't take the reporter notes from a journalist. So these people were, were afraid it was going to happen to them under a Trump administration or a possible DeSantis administration. Committee to Protect Journalists, Reporters Committee, Andrea Mitchell, NBC News. They were all defending Project Veritas three months ago. And sometimes we have to be pushed far and to the precipice, and then the people start pushing back. And in a country where we are so divided, because we are, and unfortunately it is a tragedy that we're divided on things we shouldn't be divided on. Um, and, and, I, and I believe in that what unites us, like this stuff, the First Amendment, you put the First Amendment on the screen there, Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise. What unites us, that is so much more powerful than what divides us. They ask us to focus on, they ask us to focus on our divisions. In fact, the media tends to do that. But what I've seen, and I've seen it up close because I meet all these people in government, is that the people are actually more united than you might think. They just have to have the courage. They just have to have the bravery. They have to be brave and do something. They have to come forward. And that is our mission. Now, I am, there's someone in the audience here who I'd like to bring up briefly to, um, I think I have some pictures here. Uh, let's see if I can find them. Uh, uh, would Mr. Joseph come up on, on stage for a minute? This is a person who's a hero of mine. Uh, he survived, oh, here we go. He survived the, um, the Soviet Union gulags.
So, so, so what's amazing, I, this is a picture of us in, in, uh, here a few nights ago. I gave a talk. And what's the most amazing thing about, and he wants to pray for me, and, and uh, I think he, he doesn't speak English, so we'll, we'll have a translator, Vera. And um, what I will say about him is what's remarkable about my interaction the other night was I, I said, I don't know, a decade or so he spent suffering in this gulag. I said, were you ever afraid? And he, and he told me, no, because, because of his faith. So I just wanted to have him say a few words and we'll pray and uh, take it from there. <coughs> Jan wait, 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 wait. Uh, <laughs> we weren't prepared for this as best we could be, but we'll work it out. You can hear him and then say it out loud. Here, one more. That should be low. Technical issues always. Yeah. That's good. One of the very famous uh, martyrs for Christ uh, John Hus said that a uh, true believer, he seeks for truth, he loves truth, and if necessary, to give or lay one life down for the truth. And James, I am very um, thankful for you to my God that he has given you courage and bravery and boldness. And I believe that uh, victorious men are born in battles. And the Bible says that uh, victor will receive everything. And and I believe God empowered me and gave me and other young men along with me to stand up against the totalitarian regime in my country and give us victory. And he removed all fear. And I experienced the joy that I could suffer for truth, for people, for God, for church of God. Be assured that the work that you do and your love of justice and with bravery standing up for truth and freedoms in this country that we believe are being taken away right now in our country here. And I know that God tells all of us and to you, God will never forsake us and never leave us. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, that paid a very high price for our salvation, for our joy, for everlasting life. And I beg you, Lord, and I stand with you today. So, and I ask you, Lord, that in your mercy that uh, James will be in church, not for the first time, but forever. Amen. <laughs> and in his works that he does, and the role that he is playing now, will be victorious in everything he does and that you will enable him protection and your strength. And we believe that God will never forsake you 
And we believe that the Lord will always be with you, will always protect you, and will surround you. And all of the works of the enemies that you are exposing in this country and will be just ruined by the power of the God who is mighty. We're asking you, Lord, send us revival in our midst. Let us all awake from our sleep, Lord. And let us stand strong. And pray. And be united in you. And support each other in every way we can. And please, Lord, help us in that. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I see the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken. If today be the day that I die Whoa, 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 whoa And I won't worry about tomorrow Or fear in times of trouble I keep my heart seeking you Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you Whoa, 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 whoa. When that day draws near, when my darkest fear, I will keep my heart seeking when your I will keep my heart seeking.